Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to start. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Paul knew that what he had written so far in chapters 1 and 2 would anger some Jews and confuse some others. And he also knew that mankind being the way that mankind is and always wanting to approve themselves would try to condemn God in the process. And we, we're going to look today at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, before we get to the rest of the section we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to break it down slowly because most of us have never really studied chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We all jump to verse 9 and 10, how no one's righteous, no, not one. And it's very rare that we take the time to really look and examine the questions that Paul's dealing with. He knows the, the mindset of humans that when you share truth, a lot of times people are going to go, but yeah, what about? Oh, so you're, what you're saying is, have you ever noticed that when you share with people? So what you're saying, and they try to argue with you with human reasoning. Paul understood that that was going to happen. Actually, just recently, I had someone send me an email, and there has a Bible study that they're going to, and they're arguing and debating over this question. If God knows everything and he knows who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and he knows that most people aren't going to heaven and most people are going to hell, as Jesus said, narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. Why would God, knowing all these people are going to end up spending eternity in hell, allow them to be born and all this kind of stuff? And that's what they sit around talking about. And they sent me the email asking what my answer to the question was. And I wrote back and I said, you're not going to like my answer. My answer is... Stop wasting time trying to figure out why God does what God does. Believe what the Bible says and just deal with it and accept it. That's why Paul, when we get to chapter 9, says, Who are you as the clay to say to the potter, Why did you make me that clay? He goes into a depth of God gets to do things however he wants. But part of the reason why we ask these questions, they're going to pop up as we see here in chapter 3. And oh, by the way, you're going to see in chapter 5 and following Part of the reason is, if we're honest with ourselves, we all want to justify ourselves. We don't want to humble ourselves and accept that God's God and we're not. And we want things to go the way we want them to go. But we don't realize that in doing so, we condemn God. Before we start breaking this down, go with me to Job chapter 40. Now, to set the stage, many of us have been told all the years that Job respond, Job's response to his suffering was so good. And it was in chapters 1 and 2. He didn't charge God with wrongdoing. He said, naked I came into this world, naked I'll return. But if you keep reading the book of Job, Job starts to get a little cranky. Job starts to get a little questioning. Job starts to say things like, I don't think what God's doing to me is fair. 
But who can have a face-to-face -face with God? He gets to do things however he wants, and we don't get to have a say. Boy, if I had a chance to talk to him, I'd ask him a few questions. By the way, have you ever heard anybody say that? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. Let me say something to you. No, you won't. No, you won't. Every person that saw God face to face went, I'm glad I'm still alive. You're holy. I'm not. What did Daniel say? I'm sorry, not Daniel, Isaiah. He said, I, when he was taken into the throne room of God in Isaiah 6, he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord of glory. Job himself realizes he was talking, but he didn't know what he was talking about. But listen to what happens. God now is in the third, chap uh, third chapter of his response to Job, wanting to ask God some questions. That begins back in chapter 38. But look at chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Folks, I'm going to say this to you as lovingly as I can. We all have this same problem. How many times have we heard, how could a loving God, and you fill in the blank? Why would God allow? Why would God? And what we're really doing is condemning him to justify ourselves. If I were God, I wouldn't do it that way is really what we're saying. Paul knew as he starts to lay out the gospel that there's going to be a lot of responses where people go, so what you're saying is, and what they really mean is, I don't like that. I would rather it be the way I want it to be. Who's God that he gets to say that there's only one way? As one of people say, I think there's lots of ways. I think it should be that if you just believe and have enough faith, we hear it all, don't we? We got the same problem. And so Paul realizes as he starts to lay out that everyone is guilty, Jew and Gentile alike. He knew the first question was going to be, so what is the advantage of being a Jew then? I mean, God acted like we were his chosen people and special, and now you say salvation's for everyone, and you've already said that even Jews aren't going to be in, the he in heaven. What's the advantage of being a Jew? And we dealt with that last week. What was the answer? Much in every way. But with all the privileges came more responsibility. So the next question he deals with, though, is this. So if God made promises to Israel, but not all Israel believed in order to receive them, does this take away some of God's glory? Look, look again at verse uh, 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. In other words, he's saying this. If God made all these promises to Israel, but not all Israel believed, doesn't that take away some of God's glory? There are even preachers out there, and a lot of them, who will say that Jesus didn't die for the whole world. That he only died for the people that are being saved. Trust me, there's a lot of people. Calvinism teaches that Jesus died only for the people that are going to be saved. And what they're saying is, is if Jesus' death doesn't cover the whole world, 
It wouldn't be powerful enough, so his death to be efficacious, the word they use, is only for those who are going to be saved. He didn't die for everybody. Otherwise, it would seem like it wasn't powerful enough or wasn't good enough. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus died not only for your sins and mine, but also for the sins of the entire world, 1 John 2, 2. But they said, so if God made promises, but not everybody responded appropriately, this takes away some of God's glory. And actually, Paul says, and you're going to see this word, this phrase used a lot tonight, by no means. He actually goes on to say, and I'll show you here in this chapter, that the Jews' unfaithfulness would actually further demonstrate God's glory in his holiness when he judges them. Go back again and look at verse 3 again. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, hang on for a second. Does anybody know where he's quoting from? You'd be surprised. He's in Psalm 51. Go back to Psalm 51, verse 4. Psalm 51 is where David writes this psalm after he sinned with Bathsheba. This is his cry of repentance in his section where he says, wash me clean, renew a right spirit within me. Look at what he says in chapter 51, verses one through four. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Actually, man's faithlessness, man's wickedness, man's unwillingness, if you will, to respond to God's offers, to God's truth, brings God more glory Because as you're going to see tonight, and I'm going to show you a lot of places in the Old Testament, God had been saying all along, this is how wicked you are, and you're not going to listen. So in other words, it doesn't take away from God's glory when the people don't respond to his offer. It actually increases his glory because man's sinfulness reveals the glory of God even more. Do you understand what I'm saying? You ever notice when you go to a jewelry store and you want to buy a diamond? You ever notice they quickly lay out a black cloth? And then lay the diamonds on the black cloth. Why do they do that? It enhances the glory, if you will, of the diamond to show the the blackness of, of of the background. Our wickedness actually increases the glory of God. It doesn't take away from God's glory. Now, I'm not saying us as Christians' wickedness. I'm saying the wickedness of mankind that's lost. Because God has said he will judge the sinner and he's holy and righteous. And man's unbelief actually increases God's glory because he's the one who said there's going to be a huge amount of unbelief. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. So Paul says he's right when he judges. He's justified in his words and what he said about the wickedness of man and prevailed when he judges the world. He's going to be receiving glory because he's already said that man's wicked and won't respond. So then Paul goes on and deals with another question. The secondary question then is this. So if my sin displays God's glory, why am I being judged for it since good's coming out of it? 
That's what he deals with. Keep reading here in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, he says. And then, of course, there's the answer. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? In other words, he says, okay. He says, first off, you, uh, you, some of you are going to say, what's the advantage of being a Jew? I've already laid that all out. You guys had a tremendous advantage. You had way more light. But with that came more responsibility. So you're saying that, that people then didn't believe God's promises. That takes away from God's glory. No, actually it reveals more God's glory because he said that they were going to do that. And he's going to judge them for it. But wait a minute. How can he judge us for our sin if it brings him more glory? If our sin brings him glory and our rejection of him brings him more glory, then why is he going to punish us? Because what we're doing in our sin is bringing him glory. Do you see the foolishness of man trying to condemn God and justify ourselves? Be careful. It's in all of us. It's in all of us. We want to say that I know God's word says I'm not supposed to do this, but I think. Oh, you would condemn God to justify yourself. It's in all of us. And Paul goes on and he says, in answer to this, um, if this response to our sin and God's holiness is correct, that our sin brings God glory, so he's wrong to judge us, then how could God judge the world? How could God judge the world? If, if our wickedness and rejecting him brings him more glory, how could he judge the world? There'd be moral chaos. Can you imagine if that logic actually were out there in the world where people said God is wrong to judge sin because it shows his glory and therefore he should let us just do it so he can get more glory? What would happen in the world if everybody just got to do whatever they wanted to do? Oh, by the way, isn't that the mindset of the world right now? Aren't they wanting to defund the police and... We don't want any rules. We don't, and whatever is right for you can be right for you. And whatever is right for me can be right for me. And I can choose whatever sex I want to be and all these different things. Isn't that the mindset of the world now? God's wrong to say that what I'm doing is wrong. And there are even churches now that will rewrite the Bible or retranslate the Bible to say that sin, that the Bible has said is sin all along, is now not sin. Actually, that's a desire in all of us. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. The wickedness that's going on in the globe, it's been going on all along. But at the same time, sinful man is trying to go there again, like I said, with the mindset that we have. But all sin is against God and his holiness. Remember what David said again in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, then Paul goes on and deals with another thought that comes out of that. He deals with what some were accusing Christians of teaching. That if salvation is by grace, then people should sin to get more grace. Go, keep back to, Philipp, to Romans chapter 3 here, and let's keep reading here. Uh, right, we'll start in verse 6. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is judged. Now, we're going to deal with this a little bit tonight, a lot more when we get to chapter 5. I'm going to read to you in just a second from chapter 5 and a little bit in chapter 6. But let me just kind of lay this, the foundation of what's going on. Tell me if this isn't the truth of the gospel. That in order to be saved, 
All you have to do is by faith believe that what Jesus did was live the sinless life you could not live and die in your place and rise from the dead. There's nothing you do in order to be made right. It's simply a gift by believing in God's grace and the gift of salvation. Is that not the gospel? And one preacher said years ago, he said, if when you share the gospel, if someone doesn't say, so you're saying that if I receive God's righteousness and it's not tied to my works, then I can still sin and I'll still go to heaven? He said, if that question doesn't come up, you didn't share the gospel. The gospel is, yes, as you're going to see in a little bit. But for those of us who have truly been born again, we're not going to think that way. But that is the message of the gospel. It's not tied to how good you are. It's not tied to, hey, if you believe in Jesus and live a good life. No, it's if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your salvation is given you. And it's not tied to how good you live or how good you are. That's the gospel. You will. We'll get there in time. But at the same time, the question, though, is, so if it's not tied to anything I can do, so the Christians were being accused of preaching, live whatever you want to do, because it's just by grace. Remember, the Jews have been raised under the law, and you better make sure you did this and the washings and the ceremonies. And now these Christians are coming and saying, nope, none of that. It's just by faith in Jesus. Well, you're good. You're, it's willy nilly then. And so they were accused of teaching you can do whatever you want because you're forgiven. Now, actually, there was a branch of quote-unquote Christianity that started cropping up called Gnosticism that the early church had to deal with real hard. But the Gnostics taught that you're saved in your spirit, your flesh is still corrupt, and so therefore, whatever you do in your flesh doesn't count because that's going to be burnt up. It's your spirit that is made alive. You can do whatever you want in your body. As you're going to see, that's why Paul a lot of times in Galatians and other places would say things like this. Don't use your freedom to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's why Paul would say, all things are lawful for me, but not everything's beneficial. In other words, I'm not under the law anymore. God's not going to judge me by whether or not to keep the law. Uh, but it doesn't really do me a whole lot of good to do some of that stuff anymore. Do you understand? Go with me to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 4. We're not going to break this down too much because we're going to come back to it when we get to Romans 5, but Romans 5, 18 through 6, 4. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, remember this is Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We'll deal with that later tonight. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, it doesn't matter how much sin there is, God's grace can cover it. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Go to chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's that phrase again. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
We're going to break this down a lot more when we get to chapter 5. Because I, I want you to hear me now, and you're going to hear it over and over. The gospel is more than you just need to trust Jesus as your Savior to be saved. The gospel is the power of God to live the Christian life as well. It is Jesus living in us. That is the gospel. By the way, if you try to follow six steps to good Christian living, that's not the gospel. If you try to become a better Christian by doing these things, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus will do it for you if you will believe him on a daily basis. Not only will he save you, he'll empower you to live the Christian life. You can't do it. You have to learn how to yield to him on a daily basis. We'll get into that more on uh, as we get later on in, in our study. But Paul says, go back to Romans chapter 3, dealing with those who are saying, well, you guys are teaching a kind of a message that says man can do whatever he wants, so God gets more glory. Look at what he says at the end of this section. He says in verse 8, Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Look what he says. Their condemnation is just. Those people are wicked, and God's going to judge them, and he's going to condemn them, and rightfully so. In other words, don't fall into that mindset. Now, I, years ago, was teaching at this church for a week, and I was teaching a whole series on God's grace. And after the second or third message, the senior pastor called me up and met with me. And he said, I know what you're teaching is true. But I don't want you to tell them. Because they'll abuse it. They'll take advantage of this grace. I know that the Bible teaches that it's grace. And then everything's lawful, but not everything's permissible. But I don't want you to tell them that. Jim, I've worked, this is what he told me, I've worked real hard to get them to work here. And if you tell them they're free to do whatever God says, I might not have workers anymore. And I've learned that through guilt and shame and fear, I get people to work. People are late, and you'd be surprised. There was a church I spoke at regularly in the state of Florida but one time when I was preaching there, I said, if you're not supposed to be serving on a certain committee and the Spirit of God hadn't told you to do it, you're free to quit tonight. Well, that pastor did not like that, and I have not been invited back, and I found out that's why. He didn't want me setting them free. He wanted them under control. Folks, it's in the church, too, that mindset of... I know what you're saying, but if you're saying this, then, hey, why don't God, why can't we let God be true and everyone else a liar? Why do we have to have it make sense? Why can't we just believe what his word says? Now, hopefully I'll be using the next few weeks, months as we go through Romans to help you really start to grasp what this freedom really means, what it really means to be in Christ. But we'll deal with that later. Now, Let's go to Romans chapter 3 now, verses 9 through 20. He now deals with another question. Let me read to you verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's as far as we're going to get in the time we have left tonight. Paul now continues his thoughts from chapters one and two, dealing with the need of all people to be saved, both Jew and Gentile. And then he quotes from many Old Testament passages to show that God's word, God's law has been saying that everyone needs to be saved and that everyone's guilty, even especially the Jew. He's been saying that all along. In your Bibles, do you notice how the writing of these verses looks a little different? You know, so it's kind of in my Bible, it doesn't doesn't look like the, the text of the rest of the Bible. It's actually kind of centered and set apart. You see what I'm talking about? That's because this section, he's quoting from the Old Testament. But let me show you, and I'm just going to show you a few of these things. Paul, not only here, but all through the rest of Romans, the Hebrew writer does the same thing. Jesus himself, when he rose from the dead, on that Sunday that he rose from the dead, he not only appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus and took them back to the scriptures. And remember, at that time, how much of the scriptures did they have? Just the Old Testament. They only had the Old Testament. And he just took them back to the word and how the word's been saying this all along. And then when they ran back to the upper room and said, we've seen him and he's alive. And then Jesus appears later on in that encounter with him that night. He made this statement in Luke 24. He said, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the whole Old Testament must be fulfilled. Did you catch that? Future. Still. And what I want you to see just a taste of is that the gospel has been in the Old Testament all along. It's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Many Christians, I think, are actually kind of weak in their faith because all they do is read the New Testament. They don't understand the depth of the Old Testament. And you'll say, well, Jim, I, I try to read the Old Testament. I have a hard time understanding it. Well, let me say this to you as lovingly as I can. Let God be true. And every man a liar. Because doesn't his word tell us, didn't Jesus himself say that when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, he'll guide us into all the truth? In John chapter 14, John chapter 16, Jesus goes into great detail. He says, I have more to share with you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He'll take from what is mine and make it known to you. James chapter 1 verse 5 said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Matthew chapter 11. Oh, by the way, back in chapter 1 of James, he says, but don't doubt when you ask God for that wisdom. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed it to little children, for this is your gracious will. Folks, the Bible says that if you have Christ within you and the spirit of God indwells you, you can understand the Old Testament. You just have to take the time to read it. And study it and ask him for wisdom and believe that he'll show you. One of the reasons why people are getting so excited about this book on Revelation that we've just published. And people are saying, I understand the book of Revelation for the first time. I'll ask him and I'll say, is it the first time that you took it literally and didn't try to spiritualize it? 
And is this the first time someone's ever shown you that actually over three quarters of the book of Revelation was already written in the Old Testament? All Revelation does is compile the Old Testament. Folks, how many people run to the book of Revelation and say, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yet, if they had read the Old Testament, the whole Bible that Jesus said, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are going to speak about me. If they had read that, they would have gotten to the two witnesses and the two lampstands. And they would have said, oh, those are the two lampstands mentioned in Zechariah. Oh, this is those what was already said here. And Revelation all of a sudden makes sense if you knew what God had said. So, as you're going to see here in Romans... Paul is going to be laying out for them all the way through into chapter 10, 11, and so on. Everything I'm telling you in this gospel has already been said. It's already been said. So let's have some fun. I'm going to give you a little homework assignment, but it's in class, so you can do it while we're here. I'm going to take you back to some Old Testament passages that he's quoting from here, and you tell me what verse in Romans 3 he's Pulled it, uh, it's referring to. Go to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. But don't miss the context. Don't just go looking for the verse that matches with Romans 3. Listen to the context of what's being said as well. Psalm 14, starting in verse 1. Says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have begun, become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Where is he t which verse talks about that in Romans 3? 11 and 12. Yes, very good. Now, before I go any further, who... Was this written to? Jews and also any Gentile that would want to read it. But you're right. It was mainly written to the Jews. They received the oracles of God. So the Jews are saying, are you saying I'm, I'm guilty before God? I'm a Jew. Weren't they told there's no one good? Remember when Jesus had the rich young ruler come up to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says something very interesting. He says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, he wasn't saying he wasn't God, but he was saying to him was, you call me good. Do you understand who I am? But he was also doing something else. He was saying to him, there is no one good but God. What's this guy's problem? He thinks he's still good. Because then he says, keep the law. And the guy says, I have since my youth. But Jesus had already just said to him, you didn't hear me. There's nobody good. There's nobody good. I think this false mindset, we live in a world today, people don't think they're that bad. I think I'm pretty good. But be careful. I've dealt with tons of church people who don't think they're, I know I needed Jesus to be saved. That's the only way you can go to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. John 14, chapter 14, verse 6. There's no other way we can be saved except through Jesus. I understand all that, but I'm still not as bad as that dirt bike guy and that hell's angel guy. And I'm, You understand what I'm saying? We still fall into that mindset of thinking we're better. No, folks. Let the truth of the gospel sink into your heart tonight even more. It'll help you in your walk to living it out. Go to Psalm 53. Look at verses 1 through 3. 
Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Does that sound familiar? Sound like Psalm 14, verse 1. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have been corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Sounds a lot like Romans, Psalm 14, doesn't it? He said it again in different phrases here and there, but he says it again. And he also says there's no one who seeks after God. Where's that in Romans 3? 11 and 12. Go to Psalm 5. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 9. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Anybody see you yet? 13. Very good. Go to Psalm 140. Look at verses 1 through 3. Psalm 140, verses 1 through 3. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongues sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Verse 13. There it is. By the way, would you not say that there are evil people plotting things continually right now? Nothing's new. We just know about it more because of the day we live in and the social media age. We have a little more information than they might have had back then, but nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Man's still wicked. And God has been telling man all along, this is what's really in your heart. I'm a pretty good person. No, this is in your heart. Go to Psalm 10. Look at verses 1 through 7. Psalm 10, verses 1 through 7. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgment are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. 7, 13, and 14. <laughs> Glenn, you got it. You got it. By the way, has anybody noticed we've only been looking at Psalms? I thought Psalms was like a hymn book. Psalms is an everything book. Psalms is not just a worship book. It's a law book. It's a prophecy book. Have you ever noticed that most of the prophecy that the Hebrew writer deals with in Hebrews actually goes back to Psalms? Peter, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 3 about the fact that, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 
One more time, try again. Paul in Acts chapter 13 was preaching and, and he was talking about how David died and his body rotted, but the Holy One would not see decay, quoting from the Psalms. Actually, that's why I want you to take the time to look at the Psalms and read them and, and you'll start to say, wait a minute, wow. That's quoted in the New Testament. Yep. Wow, look at that. That's quoted in the New Testament. Yep. It's been there all along. Go to Proverbs, though. Proverbs chapter 1. Look at verses 8 through 16. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Let, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have all one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Where's that in Romans chapter 3? 15. 15. Yeah, it's there too. We'll get to it. It's, it's actually 15 and 16. Go with me to Isaiah. Isaiah 59. Now, I want you to pay closer to this one because we're going to come back to it. Isaiah 59, look at verses 1 through 8. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their egg dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. 17. What does 17 say? The way of peace they have not known. Let that sink in. We're coming back to that tonight. It's important that you see that. Go with me to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. Look at verse 1. And if I were in Psalms, it would read a lot different than Isaiah 36. Let me go to Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. 18. Did you all catch the context of what Paul was quoting from in the Old Testament? 
He says, um, Jews, God's been telling you this all along. You're not righteous. You're wicked. And you need a savior. Just like the world. Just like everybody else, you need a savior. It's been there all along. But I want to deal with verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. This is important. Because you're going to see, if you're willing to let the Spirit of God show you, a thread that is all through the Bible that keeps pointing to Jesus and things that have been told us in the Old Testament that all lead us to Christ. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 67 through 79. This is when Zechariah, his tongue is finally released. Remember, because he questioned God, he was struck mute until the day that his son was born and they named him. When he said his name is John, he wrote down his name is John, then his tongue was released. And then the Holy Spirit takes over and he just starts prophesying. Listen to what Zechariah says, or the Holy Spirit says through Zechariah in Luke 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. By the way, all things that have been promised in the Old Testament, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Don't miss that. He said, you're going to be a prophet of the Most High and you're going to point them to Him and He is going to be the one that's going to give us salvation and how do we get salvation? It's right there. In the forgiveness of of our sins. And he is going to guide our feet into the way of peace. When was the way of peace ever mentioned before? You better be able to say it or else I'm going to make you go back. I told you to remember this. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, remember? 1 through 8. And the way of peace they have not known. They have not known the way of peace, but now Zechariah comes and says, the Most High, the, the Savior, the Messiah, the Promised One who's going to come through David, John the Baptist, you're going to prepare his way, and he's going to be our Savior, he's going to forgive our sins, and he's going to guide our feet to the way of peace. Go to Luke chapter 2, look at verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. He died for the whole world. He was born for the whole world. But peace is only available 
to those with whom he's pleased. Well, who's the ones that he's pleased with? Those who have faith and acknowledge their need of a Savior, who have their sins forgiven, who are given salvation and righteousness. But in order to go down that road, you have to acknowledge, I'm a bad dude. I'm a sinner. I've got a problem. And and the way of peace I haven't known apart from him opening my eyes to it. And the way of peace is Jesus and faith in him. That's why Jesus comes on the scene in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are spiritually bankrupt, everybody is. But blessed are those who realize it. And blessed are those who mourn and grieve over their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. By the way, if you hunger and thirst for something, you don't think you have it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The gospel begins with saying, God's shown you all along. Everyone's guilty before God, Jew or Gentile. Gentiles had an advantage because they, I mean, sorry, the Jews had an advantage. They had more light revealed to them. They had the written law. But don't, don't miss this. He said this in chapter 2 of Romans. The Gentiles had their laws as well, though. He wrote it on their hearts. They're conscious and convicting them or accusing them or uh, releasing them. And he's shown them the law. It's all there. What does it say in Romans chapter 5? Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Like I told you, we could study the book of Romans and never leave the book of Romans. But I just, there's so much else I want you to see it. Romans 5, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. That word justified means that when you have faith in Christ and he knows it's for, for real, he erases your sin, puts his spirit within you and seals you as his, and he declares you as righteous. Justified means you're declared as if you'd never sinned. You are righteous. You are righteous. And even your future sins are already forgiven because they've been paid for. We need to daily acknowledge our sin so that it doesn't affect our fellowship with God, but it'll never change our relationship. There's no condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for those of us who are in Christ. He'll never condemn you. He'll never send you to hell. Now, you may lose some fellowship with him, during that time that as a believer who's been declared righteous, we continue to walk in sin, which all of us still do. And that's why in 1 John chapter 1, it says, in him is, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And if any of us walk in the darkness and say we have fellowship with him, we lie. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge, you know what, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm already going to heaven and that's been a gift and I've been declared righteous, but I'm not living it right now in such a way that you will be pleased and I've grieved your spirit. I've quenched your spirit. When you're right, would you let me experience the, the joy of my salvation again? And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we don't sin, the truth's not in us. And that's why John goes on in chapter two and he says, my little children, I write to you so that you won't sin. But if we do, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so, folks, don't let this, you miss this, uh, don't let this get by you. If you have been saved by God through faith and he's given you his spirit, you are declared righteous. You have been justified. You're at peace with God. He'll never be mad at you. All of his wrath towards sin in your behalf has already been washed away by the blood of Christ. It's been applied to your account. Well, how come it feels like he's mad? That's because we don't understand his discipline. But he does it because he loves us, and it's for our best. But he's never going to be mad at you. He's never going to make you pay for what you've just done. 
Because if he's going to make you pay for what you've just done, then Jesus didn't pay the full price. It may feel unpleasant when he tries to get our attention sometimes, but he's not mad. You're at peace with God. The way of peace, you know. You've met him. He's within you. Now, we're going to finish tonight in the time we have left in the last 10 minutes in verses 19 and 20. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, I'm going to give you a quick question to see if you're with me here. When he says that the law speaks to those who are under the law, is he talking to the Jews or the Gentiles? All of us. Remember, we've already, he's already laid it out in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that even though the Jews had the written law of God, the Gentiles had his law written on their heart, and it's clear in here. It, the law speaks to every mouth, Jew and Gentile, and the whole world is accountable to God. So when it's talking about the law shown you, not just the Jews had the law, the Gentiles have had the law. By the way, what does that say about the world today that still thinks they're okay? Have they heard? They've heard. Do they know? They know. Even if they say, well, I don't believe there's a God. If you can say you don't believe there's a God, you know there is one. You just don't want to acknowledge it. Well, I don't think I'm guilty before God. Yeah, if you actually listen to your heart, you'd know you are, but you're trying to pretend it's not the case. But it, it is. I don't think what I'm doing is wrong. Yeah, you do. Do you understand what I'm saying? By the way, is it our job to convince them and to show them that they're sinners? Nope. Just live the truth and preach the truth. John chapter 16, Jesus said in verse 7, it's good for you that I go away. Because if I go away, then the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, he says, and when he comes, he's going to convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and the coming judgment. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not ours. Don't try to play the Holy Spirit and show people their sin. Just say, the Bible says that's sin. Leave it at that. Just leave it at that. Let the Spirit do his work. Now, not only does the law speak of man's sinful condition, it also supernaturally charged men and women, charged them up to sin more. Look at verse 20 again. For by the works of law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And it's more than just, I told you, knowledge. Remember back in chapter 5? Go back to chapter 5, look at verse 20. As we were looking at chapter 5 into chapter 6, we read something that was very interesting that I said we'd come back to tonight. Look again at Romans 5, verse 20. It says, now the law came, the law came in to what? Increase what? The trespass or sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law was given to increase sin. That seems contradictory in our minds. I've asked this question of Christians for years. Does God want lost people, people that aren't saved, does he want them to sin less or sin more? The answer is he wants them to sin more. Because until they really understand their problem, they won't deal with it. And the law not only said, I told you that was sin, something happens supernaturally with rules, the way we are in our flesh, that causes us not want to do it. You know what I'm talking about, Glenn. You're a guy. Someone says, you can't do something. Even if you never even thought about doing it, now all of a sudden you go, but now I want to. 
just because you said I can't. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This passage is read a lot at Easter, but there's something here in verses 57 and 56 that we've missed. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and, I'm sorry, 56 and 57. Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying when the power of sin is the law? What he's saying is this, what fuels sin is the law. We're not going to have you go there, but if you look back at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, Paul says, I didn't even know what coveting was till the law said don't covet. And then every covetous desire within me rose up and I died. And then he deals with, so is the law holy or good? Or good because, is it holy and good or is it a bad thing because it makes me sin? And he deals with the fact that it is holy. It's the sin problems in us. But listen to what he says. He says, what fuels sin is the law. Now, stick with me here. I've seen too many parents make this mistake with their children, especially as they get into teenage years, where they try to control their children's behavior by rules and regulations. I'm not saying there shouldn't be rules, but if you think the rules are going to make them obey, you don't get it. What are your rules actually going to do? They're gonna, it's going to fuel their sin even more. When the kids are little and they don't know right from wrong, you need to have more rules. It's your bedtime. Why? Because I said so. Because I'm your mom. Because I'm your dad. And that's understandable. But as they get older, it should be less about the rules and more about a relationship of love with their parents and also obedience to the Spirit of God as Christians within us. And praise God, my wife and I learned this early with our kids because we saw so many people making mistakes because they just kept trying to keep the kids under rules and eventually they're going to rebel. It's in us, all of us. We've watched God do a neat work in our children. And I'm not saying they'll never sin because they still struggle with sin just like you and I do. Yet at the same time, their hearts are still sensitive when the Spirit convicts them. That's more, interest, that's more important to us, that they learn how to listen to the Spirit of God than whether or not they keep the rules. Because it's not about that. And how many of our churches today think we're going to control everybody's behavior and make everybody get along by making rules? No running in the hall. Good luck with that. You show a little kid who can't help himself. You broke a rule, Tommy. How's he going to feel about church? Is he going to feel loved? Not want to go there? Again, it's not rules. Actually, Jesus himself was trying to get the Jews to understand this. God had a law. His law was to show us our hearts and our, our brokenness. It wasn't really about the keeping of the law. Now, Jesus kept the law perfectly, yet at the same time, he, had, he was God as well, and his heart was pure enough to be able to do it. Yet, what does he talk about with David and the shoe bread? The law says it was unlawful for anyone to eat that bread except the priest, but God was okay with David and his men in that time when it was needed and they were hungry. He says, he says if your donkey falls in the ditch on the Sabbath, you're not going to get it out. I'm not worried about breaking the law. It's the heart of the law. And when we understand that, God's law is to show us our problem. It's still holy and good, and we should walk to be in obedience to it. But who is going to empower us to live it according to God's plan? The Spirit of God himself. 
Well, that's why I can't wait as we start moving into the further into the gospel here in Romans that we'll start to really understand the power of God in the gospel that we have within us to live the Christian life. And I can't wait to experience it more myself and help you with it. But there's good news, and we're going to wrap up with this tonight, and that's where we're going to pick up next week. I got good news for you. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, a little commercial for next week. But now the righteousness of God, it's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They talk about it, but the law can't get you there. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the way, if you've sat here tonight and heard all this and the spirit of God's helped you realize, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Don't you feel grace and appreciation for that grace and thank God it's not tied to how well I've done let me just give you a commercial for where we're going to be going in the future future weeks don't just get stuck on the gospel being I believe in Jesus I'm going to heaven there's so much more to it how to live the Christian life is also in the gospel the power of sanctification is in the gospel and Paul's going to lay that all out for us in the next few weeks but until then I love you thanks for coming we'll see you next week